you turn with me in your Bibles to the first epistle of Peter. And this morning we're going to be reading the first 12 verses. The first epistle of Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honour and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully. Who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what or in what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels desire to look into. Now last time we looked into the background and the purpose of the first epistle of Peter. We considered some of the objections that have been challenged to the authorship of the apostle Peter and showed that none of those arguments were valid and concluded that we can therefore be sure that the Apostle Peter did indeed write the letter. You will hopefully be reminded by verse 2 that this was a circular letter written to churches across a number of regions over a vast area which today makes up northern Turkey. It is clear from the letter that Peter had great affection for those he was writing to. He appears to have known them well. And we do not know for certain whether he actually visited them personally, but the tone of the letter suggests that he may well have done so. 
We do know that Paul was told by the Holy Spirit not to go into that region. Was it because God had set it aside for Peter to minister to? The fact of the matter is that we don't know for certain. The letter, in all likelihood, was written in AD 63 at a time when Christians were beginning to feel the scorn and malice of an unbelieving world. And as history records, far worse was to come in the very near future. Peter wrote to prepare them for it. His message being not how to escape it, but how to stand firm, remain faithful and patiently endure those fiery trials that they were beginning to experience. And he does this by focusing their attention on their identity as God's people in Christ. Amen. In chapter 1 he considered the individual aspect of their salvation. In chapter 2, the corporate In the first half of chapter 1, he focused on what God has done for them, and from verse 13 to the end of the chapter, on how they are to respond. Today, we're going to consider in greater depth the first 12 verses of chapter 1. Now, one of the most encouraging things about the New Testament epistles is that they almost always begin with a greeting. Peter first identifies himself as an apostle. And it's important that we understand the significance of that and not simply dismiss it as a harmless literary device to add weight to the letter. As an apostle, Peter was an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. We read in Acts how early believers devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. They did so because the apostles spoke and wrote with the authority of God since they wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we're not simply reading Peter's words, but we are reading the very word of God. So when Peter begins this letter with a greeting that communicates his undoubted love for them, he's also communicating the fact that God wants to greet them and make his love known to them. Peter is communicating God's message to them, that they are welcome, that they've been accepted, They belong and that God wants to assure them of this. God is pleased to know them and to be known by them. He wants to bless them, to know by experience his grace and his peace on account of his abundant mercy. He wants to encourage them, strengthen them and as a loving father he wants what is best for them. Now as a loving father that means he wants to keep them and protect them. But it does not follow that keeping and protecting always involves keeping them out of harm's way and never allowing them to experience tribulation and danger. There are circumstances when avoiding danger is the wisest and the right thing to do. However, this is not always the case. And God's protection will sometimes involve preparing strengthening and enabling his people to patiently endure tribulation in order to persevere through it, even remaining faithful unto death in some extreme circumstances. Now it's important that we understand that Peter is communicating God's love to God's people. He's communicating God's love to those who have been born again or begotten again to a living hope through the resurrection. For them, 
the historical fact of the resurrection has been a life-changing experience. We read that they no longer conform to their former way of life or former lusts, as Peter wrote in verse 14. They have been transformed to live a life of holiness, a life sanctified by the Holy Spirit for obedience to Christ. They are a people who know, by experience, the same life-changing power that Peter himself has experienced too. For he knew that transformation, that transformation from the pain and misery of having denied his Lord on the day that Jesus was crucified, to the inexpressible joy when he met with the risen Lord, who then commissioned him with the responsibility to feed his sheep. And this is what Peter was, and Peter in this letter was doing precisely that, feeding Jesus' sheep. He is writing to a people who know the Lord as their shepherd. As I mentioned earlier, this is a general letter, originally written to all believers throughout the region of northern Turkey. Now given this, I believe we can therefore accept that its message is for all believers everywhere throughout time. It's a message that communicates how God loves and welcomes his people. But what about unbelievers? How does God feel about them? Well, Jesus made it abundantly clear that he has pity and compassion for them, regarding them as sheep without a shepherd. Now, in this introduction, Peter makes clear that those who he is writing to have not become God's people by any virtue of their own. No, their inclusion into the people of God is entirely the work of the triune God. The Father, whose will was to make a way of salvation. The Son, whose sacrifice has made it possible. And the Holy Spirit, who makes it real and effective in the lives of true believers. Peter described the believers that he wrote to as pilgrims of the dispersion. As citizens of the kingdom of heaven, they were to regard themselves as temporary residents living in a foreign land who live in constant awareness of their true home. And this attitude was not uncommon at the time, as Christian literature from that period confirms. And we have preserved today copies of a letter written by someone who was thought to have been a disciple of the Apostle John, he wrote a letter to someone called Diogenetes, sometime after the year 130 AD. Now the letter is rather long, and it's composed of many chapters. But chapter 5 illustrates perfectly the point I'm trying to make. And I'll read it to you now. For Christians are not distinguished from the rest of mankind either in locality or in speech or in customs. For they dwell not somewhere in cities of their own, neither do they use some different language nor nor practice an extraordinary kind of life. Nor again do they possess any invention discovered by any intelligence or study of ingenious men, nor are they masters of any human dogma as some are. But while they dwell in cities of Greeks and barbarians, as the lot of each is cast, and follow the native customs in dress and food and other arrangements of life, yet the constitution of their own citizenship, 
which they set forth is marvellous and confessedly contradicts expectation. They dwell in their own countries, but only as sojourners. They bear their share in all things as citizens, and they endure all hardships as strangers. Every foreign country is a fatherland to them, and every fatherland is foreign. They marry like other men and beget children, but they do not cast away their offspring. They have meals in common, but not their wives. They find themselves in the flesh and yet live not after the flesh. Their existence is on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws and they surpass the laws in their own lives. They love all men and they are persecuted by all. They are ignored and yet they are condemned. They are put to death and yet they are endued with life. They are in beggary and yet they make many rich. They are in want of all things and yet they abound in all things. They are dishonoured and yet they are glorified in their dishonour. They are evil spoken of and yet they are vindicated. They are reviled and they blessed. They are insulted and they respect. Doing good they are punished as evildoers. Being punished they rejoice as if they were thereby quickened by life. War is waged against them as aliens by the Jews, and persecution is carried on against them by the Greeks. And yet those that hate them cannot tell the reason for their hostility. Now, as I explained in my last talk, the believers Peter was writing to would have been predominantly Gentile believers. However, the content of the letter does suggest there would have been considerable influence from believers of Jewish background, particularly in teaching roles, since Peter, throughout the letter, made several references to things in the Old Testament which have deep spiritual significance for Christians, which would have needed to have been explained, particularly to those those from a Gentile background. Take, for example, the expression sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ in verse 2. In the Old Testament, there are three circumstances in which blood was sprinkled. Firstly, in the establishment of a covenant. In Exodus 24, we read of how blood was sprinkled when the Mosaic covenant was made. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. The second circumstance in which blood was sprinkled, we read about in Exodus chapter 29, when Aaron and his sons were consecrated as priests. And you shall take some of the blood that is on the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and on his garments, on his sons, and on the son, garments of his sons with him, and he and his garments shall be hallowed, and his sons and his sons' garments with him. The third circumstance we read in Leviticus 14 was in the purification ceremony for a cleansed leper. And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is cleansed from leprosy, and shall pronounce him clean. 
Now likewise, the sprinkling of Jesus' blood accomplishes these very things for us. Firstly, the establishment of the new covenant prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Secondly, the sprinkling of of Jesus' blood consecrates his people as priests. As Peter wrote in chapter 2, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And lastly, the sprinkling of Jesus' blood cleanses his people from all unrighteousness. As the Apostle John wrote, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And finally, as far as the initial greeting is concerned, Peter concludes this greeting by pronouncing a blessing of grace and peace, the meaning of which we considered more fully last time. Now, when Peter considered the significance of what he had wrote in this initial greeting, he could not help but pronounce a blessing of thanksgiving and praise to God, which we read in verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away. The blessing that Peter pronounced reveals God's motive for our salvation. It's his abundant mercy. His mercy is abundant, it is not reluctant. He delights to give us salvation, not because we deserve it, but because of his gracious and undeserved compassion that he has for those who were once his enemies. And this salvation involves a complete change of life. We've been begotten again to a living hope. You must be born again to receive that living hope as an incorruptible inheritance. And this is made possible as a consequence of the new covenant which Christ has established by the sprinkling of his blood which the prophet Ezekiel foretold centuries before. Through the prophet Ezekiel, God said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh And give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. Now notice this is entirely God's work. This is not a change that we can bring about in ourselves. Our old lives must die. To bring about this change... God must perform spiritual heart surgery. Now obviously I'm not referring to the physical organ that pumps blood around our bodies. The heart referred to here represents the core of our being. That part of our inner self that defines who we are. And Because of our fallen sinful nature, our hearts are like stone. Too hard to be shaped or written upon. 
God has to remove it and replace it with a new heart, a heart of flesh, a soft heart that can be moulded and upon which he can write his law. And to do this work in us, he gives us his, his spirit to indwell within our hearts. We cannot do this ourselves. It's only on account of his abundant mercy that we can be born again. And God has promised to perform this work in all who come to him in repentance. Those who call upon his name, appealing to his abundant mercy and believing in the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross and his resurrection from the dead for the forgiveness of sin. This is why Jesus taught Nicodemus, you must be born again. And on one occasion, the 18th century evangelist George Whitfield was challenged by a lady who complained, why is it, Mr Whitfield, that everywhere you go, you tell everyone you must be born again? To which he simply replied, because, madam, you must. It is only those who are born again who have the living hope of receiving an incorruptible inheritance. Now, inheritance is another of those Old Testament principles that have special spiritual significance for those who have entered into the way of salvation under the new covenant. For the people of Israel, as descendants of Abraham, the land of Israel was their inheritance. It was the hope of entering the promised land that kept them during the years they spent in the wilderness. However, the land was not an incorruptible inheritance. The history as described in the Old Testament tells us how the land was defiled by the pagan Canaanites and also by the idolatry of the people of Israel themselves. It was laid waste at various times by invading armies, almost completely so after the third invasion of the Babylonians. And during the time of Elijah, it was parched dry as a consequence of God's judgment. But unlike Israel's inheritance, the inheritance for those in the new covenant is incorruptible, undefiled and does not fade away. Now, notice Peter does not describe what it is like, but rather he states what it isn't like. See, this inheritance is too great to describe for it's a reality that surpasses present comprehension. Now, although we cannot picture or describe this inheritance perfectly, God has revealed something of this inheritance that we can understand, if only in part. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, now we see in a mirror dimly. So what do we know of this inheritance? Well, firstly, we know it involves a place, a location, an environment, which is described in Revelations chapter 21 and 22 <clears throat> as the new heavens, the new earth and the new Jerusalem. It also involves a new, deeper, fuller and more, uh, a more intimate relationship with God. In Revelation 21 verse 3, John wrote, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they shall be his people. And in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul describes this relationship as being face to face. Our inheritance also involves a change to our physical bodies. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul describes something of this change from our current corruptible physical bodies into an incorruptible spiritual body. 
He likens this change to being like the difference between a seed and the plant it produces. A bit like the difference between an acorn and an oak tree, for example. Now, David Pawson has helpfully summarised this change for us. He writes, At present, we are trying to live the new spiritual life in our old physical bodies that are programmed with wrong habits and desires and are subject to decay. The crowning climax of restoration will be the gift of a brand new body, uncontaminated by our sinful past, unlimited in its expression of the spirit within, and unaffected by death, decay and disease. Not only will our physical bodies be changed, but so too will our inner character. As the Apostle John wrote, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Our inner characters will be so transformed that we will perfectly reflect his righteous character. And this is the hope of glory that Paul wrote about to the Colossians. We will be fully restored to what we were created to be, made in the image of God. Although the complete fulfilment of this inheritance is still future, we do, however, experience the first fruits of this inheritance now. Now, the reason Peter wrote of the future fulfilment of this inheritance at the beginning of this letter is because he is preparing to face the fiery trial of persecution that they had already begun to experience. For in times of great persecution, the word of God directs his people to their future hope as an anchor that keeps the soul. Now regarding this inheritance, God has given us two assurances. Firstly, it is kept in heaven for, for us where it cannot spoil or fade. Secondly, Peter writes that we are kept for it. Isn't it reassuring that God is a God who keeps his people? In the conclusion uh, to his letter to the Romans, Paul wrote of the God who is able to keep you. And Moses' prayer for the people of Israel was, May the Lord bless you and keep you. So, what in, so in what sense... Does God keep us? Well, firstly, we need to understand that keeping would not be necessary unless there was danger outside and weakness within. Now, the word kept is used in the sense of being kept safe, kept in protective custody, under guard, but not in a cage against our will. The person kept is the one who is abiding in a continuing relationship of faith in God. And faith is the means by which he keeps us. Peter wrote, we are kept by the power of God through faith. Now we need to remember that this faith is his gift to us. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. So the faith that God has given us as a gift, when received, becomes our faith. Now we need to remember the power of faith is not in the one who has it, but in whom it is directed to. Our faith and hope are in God who has brought eternal life to us 
through his living word. Faith is not our achievement, but trust in God's achievement. So that is God's assurance to us. Our inheritance is kept in heaven for us, and we are being kept for its full enjoyment. We are kept for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time by the faith that God has given to us. Now the fact that our inheritance is kept in heaven for us and that we are kept for it is a cause for deep rejoicing. For the knowledge of receiving this inheritance is the living hope of a certain event in the future that has not yet been realised at present. And it is this very hope that will sustain those Peter is writing to in their current circumstance. Jesus taught his disciples that testing trials would be an inevitable consequence of the Christian life. Now in verse 6 Peter wrote, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Now there are two points regarding these trials that Peter made here. Firstly, They are temporary. They last a little while, particularly when considered in the light of the glorious eternity that awaits them. Secondly, they are grievous. They are not pleasant. They are, in this case, the consequence of the malice and scorn of an unbelieving and increasingly hostile world. And although harm is the intent of its perpetrators... God can and does use these circumstances for his own purpose and glory. God uses, God uses these grievous trials to prove the genuineness of their faith, that it may be found to praise, honour and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Their faith is being tested by fire, Not because he doesn't know how much of um, um, or what kind of faith they have. Jesus on many occasions revealed that he knew exactly what was in man's heart. But they were, and we like them, we're often ignorant of how much and what quality of faith we have received as a gift. So God's purpose in testing is therefore to display the enduring quality of our faith, to encourage us. But not only us, to encourage our fellow believers and also as a testimony to an unbelieving world. The faithful endurance of Christian martyrs like Stephen, Paul, Peter himself and also the likes of Polycarp and Tyndale still bear testimony today. Persecution and martyrdom of Christians still continues to this day in many parts of the world and it's a fact that the church is growing fastest in these places. Now Peter compared their faith as being something far more precious than gold. See, their faith is eternal. Gold is not. And Peter knows that their faith is genuine. He knows them. He knows that even though they have not seen the things that uh, he has seen, that they truly believe and that they have received the faith that is a gift from God. For this faith has filled them with an inexpressible joy, a joy so profound that it was beyond the power of words to express. 
Now, although they had not seen, this was not blind faith. Biblical faith is not without credible evidence. Their faith was rooted and grounded, as Peter made clear in verse 3, in the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Christianity stands or falls on this very point. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, then our faith is empty and futile. And along with Peter, Paul and all Christians throughout history, we are false witnesses of God. To disprove Christianity, all one needs to do is to prove that Jesus was not raised from the dead. Many have earnestly tried. And often those who have sought to do so seriously, by, by seriously considering the evidence with an open mind, have ended up so convinced that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead, that they've spent the rest of their lives testifying to that fact. The Christian faith is not blind faith. It is evidence based on real historical events. The gospel accounts are written eyewitness testimony as to the facts concerning the birth, life, death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Luke wrote at the beginning of his gospel. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. And the Apostle John wrote, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Peter was teaching them of a sure and a certain hope. He was not writing of a new first century religion or philosophy. The salvation he was talking about was the fulfilment of prophecies given centuries before by the prophets of Israel in the Old Testament. In fact, these prophecies concerning salvation date back to the beginning of time. In the Garden of Eden, God himself promised victory over the serpent through the male seed of the woman. Yet the promised redeemer would not receive this without suffering. You shall bruise his heel, God told the serpent. Now the Old Testament prophets knew that the messages they gave were not from themselves. They knew they weren't expressing their own thoughts, ideas or desires. They knew the prophecies given through them were given by the Spirit of Christ, which is why they qualified their messages with statements like, the word of the Lord came to me. They also understood that they were ministering to a people of a later time, as well as to people of their own day. And when we read their prophecies, we see that much of their message involved the pronouncement of warning and judgments for the sin of the people. But we also see that their prophecies 
did not end with judgment. They spoke of a time of renewal, a time of grace that was to come. Although they knew they were ministering to people of a future generation, their prophecies were not beyond their comprehension. The prophecies given through them intrigued them and inspired them to diligently search for a fuller understanding. They yearned for greater and clearer revelation and sought to interpret these prophecies inquiring into the time when God's salvation would come. But the full meaning would not come until Christ appeared. Now, because we know the who and the when of these Old Testament prophecies, they should be of far greater interest to us than they were even in the days of the prophets. Now, just as the prophets desired to know more of the outworking of God's plan of salvation, Peter revealed that the same is true of the angels as well. And did you notice how in verse 12, angels are spoken of in a matter-of-fact manner? Now, in today's scientific age, any mention of angels leads many to dismiss these historical accounts written in the Bible as myth or legend.